Well, good morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn them to Joel chapter 2, and we're going to continue our look at this uh, prophetic book, which uh, I think is very relevant for today in the world that we live in, as it was for the people of God in Joel's day. Um, I don't know, some of you may remember, we're going to start reading in verse 28 in just a moment. Some of you probably remember the movie, uh, which is played every year. It's a classic, The Wizard of Oz with uh, uh, Judy Garland. And uh, in the movie, there's a scene after they discover and rescue the Tin Man where they start back on their journey to the Emerald City. Uh, and they enter this very scary, uh, dark forest. And uh, the companions start to speculate if there's any wild animals in the forest. And they say... Uh, you know, you think there might be some lions here. Well, I don't know about lions, but there may be some tigers. Oh no, you mean maybe some bears? And Yeah, some bears. And they start, they, they hold hands and they kind of get close to each other and they start saying lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, lions and, come on, go ahead. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, lions. Good, that's great. See, Presbyterians can actually relax a little bit. Not very much, but a little bit. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, of course, the cowardly lion jumps out and he scares them half to death. And there's this, this literary device that many, many authors use. Almost every author will use it to some degree of creating an atmosphere of gloom and doom. You know, entering a dark forest and, and that the fear kind of starts to creep down on you. There's tension. There's despair. Are we going to actually make it through this particular part of the journey? Are we going to make it through this particular part of our lives? You know, teenage years with our children. Are we going to actually make it through uh, this economic set, are we going to make it through this political season in the United States, which seems to be so polarized and difficult? Are we going to make it through? And then there's this uh, opening in the forest, the dark and the gloom goes away, and they're there on the edge of the, the forest, and there's a poppy field, and they start singing and dancing and going through the poppy field. And of course, the wicked witch. Uh, sends her spell, and they follow. And there's more doom and gloom. Oh, are they ever going to get out of this? What's going to happen? And then, of course, the the white witch rescues them, and uh, they, they're able to make their journey onto the Emerald City. The prophets of the Old Testament use this very style. And I know that many of you, like uh, like me, I mean, we we get to be. Uh, a little bit afraid, I think, of reading the prophets because it's such a strange kind of literature. But if you will look for those patterns of doom and gloom and then promises of blessing and then maybe a little bit more doom and gloom and then promises of blessing and see how they're structuring it, a lot of times just the structure of the prophet, uh, the book, will tell you as much as the actual content. It's really uh, quite remarkable. The, the prophets use this style, and they'll start out with something like, blow the trumpet. We read this a few weeks ago. Sound the alarm. The day of the Lord is coming. Listen. The day of darkness, gloom, clouds of darkness. And then a few verses later, it gives way, and he says, be glad. Rejoice, O Zion. Rejoice, people of the Lord. So you see this, upswing. And Joel uses this technique uh, 
actually as good or better than any of the other prophets. And uh, one of the reasons I picked this book is because it's short, it's simple, and you can get your head around it if you've been following uh, and taking a, a, few, a few notes. Joel describes this horrific plague of locusts, and he tells the people, wake up from your drunken stupor. So as a society, it was almost as if they were intoxicated. They could not function. They were in an altered state of consciousness with respect to who they truly were and who God truly was and the dangers that surrounded them. And the locust served as a wake-up call. Wake up, you drunkards. He explains the locust plague as a sign. He said, this is, this is a terrible judgment, but this is nothing compared to the judgment that is coming. There's more judgment that will come. The locust simply presages or prefigures a greater uh, judgment. And then in the midst of this darkness, we looked at this a week ago, in the midst of the darkness come these tender words. It's, it's Again, remember, the darkness, the gloom, now come the tender and assuring words. God says to them, even now, even now, in the midst of the locust plague, if you will return to me with all your heart. Rend your hearts, not your garments. He's saying to them, I don't want any outward show. I don't want any pretense. I don't want any hypocrisy. I want you to rend your hearts. You're truly inside. I want you to really feel the, the brokenness, we talked about brokenness, the brokenness that is necessary for true repentance to take place. See, repentance can be just sort of superficial. I feel really bad about my sin. But brokenness will take you to a place where not only do you feel terrible about your sin, but you will look for the Lord. You will resort to Him. You will turn to Him. So when I'm, when I'm talking to people in our church and, and, and they're telling me how awful they are and I'm the worst sinner and there's nobody as bad as me, I always say, just a minute, I'm as bad as you. And I know a whole, in fact, I can start naming names. I know lots of people that are as bad as you. No, we're all flawed people. Some of us more than others. You are, I'm sure, much worse than me. But the fact of the matter is we are all flawed people. And the reality is, we are to go down into a deeper part of our heart. Not just super, I feel bad about my sin. No, think about what it really means to be in opposition and transgression to God, okay? And the way back to God, Joel tells us, is the way of brokenness. True repentance, turning from your sin to God. That's what true repentance is. It's two-sided. And having faith in God, putting your trust in Him and not in how well you make up for your bad mistakes. When we make mistakes, the first inclination of the human being and especially Christians is, I'll try what? Harder. And that is a mine. It's like stepping on a mine and getting your legs and arms blown off. And though we have military people in here. You've either seen it or you know how horrific that is for the person who doesn't die and yet is without their limbs. And to say, I will try harder, that's what we call Nike theology, and it simply is non-Christian. Of course you try harder, but you must first go to the Lord, you must first resort to Him for strength. And that's uh, 
what he wants us to do. And he says, he assures us when we do that, he assures us, I will pity. We looked at this last week especially. I will send grain, wine, and oil. I will satisfy you. I will drive out. How many of you go through your lives feeling dissatisfied at some level? I've never met anyone yet that is fully satisfied at every level. There's a, no matter how much money you have, no matter how little money, no matter how great a marriage you have, no matter how bad, no matter how great your kids are, no matter how bad your kids, no matter how good a job you have, no matter bad bad a job. Everybody suffers some level of unease and dissatisfaction. Not with everything, but with some things. And he says, I will satisfy you. I will restore the years the locusts have eaten and you will praise the name of the Lord your God. I will restore. Think about it. Folks, we all long for restoration. We can look back, especially those of us that are a little older, and I'm, I'm not one of those, but one of those people that's very old, like many of you. Uh, the, the, you look back on your life and you think, gosh, I wish I could have done this different and that. You know what? The fact is you cannot. You cannot undo. So what, where is your hope? Here it is. I will restore. I will take the bad things that have happened to you and I will find a way in my sovereign wisdom to make them good, not good things, but good for you. I will turn your mourning into what? Dancing. He doesn't erase our past. He doesn't erase all that. He restores. He redeems. He reclaims. Okay? And now in this section that we're about to read, he's going to make a dramatic shift. And I know I've taken a lot of time with the introduction, but I'll go through these points quickly. Now he's going to make a dramatic shift. And so let's start reading in verse 28 and listen to the Word of God and see if you can pick up this amazing literary device that this genius prophet under the inspiration of Holy Spirit, how he makes this amazing transition. And it shall come to pass afterward, he's talking about an indeterminate future, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out My Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. Oh my. Blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. Oh my, you can almost hear Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Straw Man singing this. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to talk about three things this morning that uh, uh, we'll go through quickly. First of all, the oracles of blessing. These oracles or these words of the prophets were not always future. Once in a while, the prophets predicted future events. But the vast majority, and there's only a handful, folks, 
This one is one of them, but there's only a handful in all the prophetic literature where they are purely predicting future events. Most of the time, they're explaining events that are actually taking place or have just taken place. It's really quite remarkable. Unlike mystical prophets, unlike Nostradamus and these other prophetic people who go into trances and, you know, and they make these, these statements about centuries from now, this and this and this. The Hebrew prophets were very unique. They were more like pastors and teachers and, and, and scholars and ministers. They would, and sometimes they were very common people like Amos. He was a shepherd of Tekoa. You, you look at these men, they were just normal people. They were not these mystics who lived in caves and only ate uh, grasshoppers except for Elijah and John the Baptist. We're not too sure about those two guys. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, most of them were normal people who at a point in history, God would start to show them what the signs of the times were, what the world really looked like. And that's one of the jobs of your pastor, one of the jobs of the elders of your church, is to, is to explain to you honestly what is really going on in our world today. Not to take sides, but to say, here's what it looks like and here's what the people of God are to do and be in response to the culture around us. That's our job. So he, he, he gives three oracles in this brief little part, and this is why I hope you enjoy this, because it will help you understand the rest of the prophetic literature. An oracle of blessing, then an oracle of judgment, then an oracle of what we will call salvation. An oracle of blessing, judgment, and salvation. First of all, the oracle of blessing. Look at 28 and 29. He says, I will pour out. This is what he's talking about is a new era, an era that is going to come in some undetermined future. In fact, it occurred at least for what we understand, it occurred very quickly in Joel's day. In Joel's day, God actually removed the locusts, gave them the former and the latter rain, the crops grew, and they were restored. But he was presaging a future day when another disaster would happen and another great restoration would occur. All right? So it's, the prophecy doesn't just have one fulfillment. Sometimes they had several. Sometimes they were partially fulfilled and you have to do a lot of study. And of course, you have to come listen to me because I will only tell you what's right. Okay. No, you do have to think about it. You've got to read through it and think about what does it say and what is the context and all of that which, which I've done for you. The oracle of blessing. A new era is coming. An era of lavish and extensive and inclusive blessing. Okay? Lavish, extensive. I will pour out my spirit. In other words, it's not going to be begrudging or holding it back. It's going to come like a flood. It's going to pour out. It's going to be extravagant, the pouring out of the spirit. It's going to be my spirit. I'm not just going to pour out any old spirit. It's going to be my very spirit that I'm going to pour out. Personal, my spirit, intimate, on you. It's going to be very personal, very intimate, not abstract. Many times when I'm talking to somebody about God, we're talking about God, I'm saying God, they're saying God, but they're talking about God in abstract terms like this big 
big, huge God. When I'm talking about God, I'm talking about a man who had dirt under his fingernails and splinters in his hands and calluses in his hands and whose body was beaten and broken and who finally was nailed to a cross and died. That's the man I'm talking about. I'm not talking about some, some grandfatherly figure in the sky who really doesn't exist. I'm talking about Jesus Christ the King, the Lord, the true God-man, the one who actually you and I can relate. And Jesus said Himself, you can't understand the Father unless you know Me. And Jesus said, you can't even begin to understand or receive the Holy Spirit unless you have Me. You see, you can't get your head around who God truly is until you know Jesus Christ. And you can't even understand the Holy Spirit and His work in your life until you understand Jesus Christ. Why? Because He was flesh and blood like you and I. The Scripture says He was tempted in every way like you and I are, yet without sin. He was not Superman. He was a man. Just like you and I. Was He divine? Was He uh, God Himself? Yes. But he was a hundred percent human as well, and we tend to we tend to make Jesus some sort of a weird, ethereal, ethereal figure, and don't see him as a true human being. And he says he will pour out his spirit, the spirit that was on Jesus. He is pouring out on us, very personal, very intimate, very powerful. I'll pour it out on all flesh. This is where it's lavish. It's without distinction. I'm going to pour it out on, on your sons and your daughters. I'm going to pour it out on old men and young men. There's not going to be these distinctions that in, in ages past and even today, as enlightened as we are in the 21st century, there are still barriers of race, Ageism, when you get old, you know, you, you start to feel like you're getting left to the side. The gray hair doesn't matter anymore. There was a time when gray hair was a sign of great dignity. And when a man, I can remember when, when um, um, even as, as, as young as I am, I can remember when my grandparents would walk, my grandmother or grandmother, when they walked in the room, you stood up. You know, you gave them a hug. You paid respect to those old people. And we've lost a lot of that. And he's saying, no, we're going we're gonna to get racial distinctions, old, young, male, female. Not that you're no longer a man or a woman. Not that we're all monochromatic. But the distinctions that separate us, I'm going to obliterate and take away. So that there's an inclusiveness to the gospel that you don't see anywhere else, anywhere else in the world. It's quite unique and quite lovely even on your servants, even status, the poor, the rich, you know, it, it, th those distinctions which so separate us even today, especially perhaps today in America, rich and poor, lots of separation there. And it's getting more. And he's saying those things should not separate us. We don't embrace communism. We don't take all the rich people and take their money and give it to all the poor people and just mash everybody down to be the same. No, keep your money. And some of us, we stay poor. But the distinction, the honor that is paid, the rich person gets a good chair, the poor person sits in the back on a folding chair. No, those distinctions do not exist, at least not in this room.
in this physical space, we fight back, we push back, we do everything we can. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your... In the new era, the Holy Spirit is overflowing in the life of God's people. One of the reasons that we come to church every week is because, we, as the saying goes, we're leaky vessels. You know, you go through the week, you get beat up. Do any of you get beat up during the week? I do. I mean, by tomorrow, about 3 o'clock, I'm going to be beat up. You know, it doesn't take long. You get tired, you get worn out, you sin, you, cre- you, call, you, know, you do things that are wrong and it just eats away, it's toxic. And that's why God calls us every week, one day in seven, to come and restore your soul. Get your, your, your energy back, your spiritual energy. Feed upon the, the elements of God's holy sacrament by faith. And John Calvin said it actually will energize your body, your physical body. This is not just something we imagine. We actually are partaking of the body and blood of Jesus, communing with Him. And so therefore, we are energizing ourselves every week for another battle, another charge at the gates of hell. You see it. That's what this is about. We get our strength directly from Him. An oracle of blessing. Then He returns. He goes back to this oracle of judgment. And he says, along with this blessing, however, listen carefully, folks, this is important. Because I think we tend to be very, in the West, we tend to be very black and white. Everything's black and white. The Bible is not black and white. The the Bible is full of gray. There's very few things that are black and white in the Bible. Now that may come as a shock to you, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it, but things are really messy. The Bible is a messy book with messy people. And a God who does not stand aloof but gets messy with us. He comes down into this world and He gets born where? In a manger with dirty animals, in poverty, with nobody who believed in Him. He wasn't born in a palace. A messy Savior to save messy people in a messy world. And so he's saying along with these blessings, there's going to be an era, a time, listen carefully, of judgment. And so as the people of God, this is my job, is to warn you and say along with the great blessings that we enjoy, particularly in the United States, we are living in a land flowing with milk and honey. Have you been seeing, have you been watching the news, seeing what's going on in Aleppo, Syria? And now the jets are flying over another big city up there. They're getting ready to bomb that one. That's the next one. Two million people in Aleppo, 600,000 dead. We can't even imagine it. And my family is from Lebanon and Syria. So I'm watching this. I'm, I'm I'm saying to myself, what is going on in our world today? A genocide before our very eyes. And we live in a land of milk and honey, folks. And it's so very hard for us to relate to those horrific events. But we need to understand that along with blessings, there is great judgment in this world. And maybe possible the United States experiences some of this judgment in our future. You know, God forbid, we hope it doesn't happen. But if it does happen, you must be prepared. You can't get knocked off of of your, your game and say, oh my goodness, I thought God was just all about blessings. No, judgment comes. 
And very often when God judges the evil people, the righteous people, and that's those of you in this room, are righteous by the blood of Christ, we get caught up in it. And there is to be a distinction. God makes a distinction when that happens between the holy, you, and the profane. He doesn't take us out of the problem. He lets us stay in the problem and be different. In other words, we're the people that share our food, not hold our food. We're the people that, that have compassion and not, and not hatred. We're the people that stand up for the minorities and for the broken and for justice. We're the ones that actually fight for what is right. Yes? Okay. This is poetic language when he talks about, I will show wonders in heaven and on earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke, the sun shall be darkened. No matter what you read in the literature, popular books about blood moons and all this other stuff, that is nonsense. If you want to buy it and read it as good fiction, that's fine. Read it. It's actually not good fiction. But if you want to read it, fine. But don't read your newspaper or these off-the-wall prophetic types that come out and say, oh, there's five blood moons this year. This is the end of the world. That's bogus. This language is very clearly poetic. And he's talking about events that the, the moon is not going to actually turn to blood. The sun is not actually going to go out. But there will be blood and fire and vapor or columns. In Hebrew it says columns of smoke. It's a picture of a battlefield. Those of you in the military who have actually seen combat, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When, when there's a big battle and the tanks are moving, and uh, Steve could probably tell us firsthand, the tanks moving across and the, the billows of, of sand going up and the sun gets dark and, and the moon when it comes out at night it looks red like blood because of the optical illusions and so on and so forth. All these things happen and it creates tremendous fear. There's a disruption. There is a battle going on. A battle of life and death. Blood. Fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. It's to remind the people. You see, Joel reaches back into the memory and the literature of the Old Testament people who he's talking. He's not talking to you, by the way. He's talking to a whole other group of people. We get to overhear it. But he's talking to this group of people and he's saying, remember that? Remember when there was blood? The Nile River turned to blood. Remember when there was smoke and fire and vapor? Mount Sinai, when we came cringing to the mountain and Almighty God is up there and He told us if you even touch the mountain, you will die. Terror and fear. Do you see? They're in the dark forest. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. And Joel is a master. He's a genius at using this to evoke these images in the people of God. There's burning. There's dust. There's smoke. There is cosmic judgment. In other words, he's saying the the world is in an apocalyptic state. It It could explode any moment. And therefore, we as the people of God are to have faith in God and great humility, and reach out to the lost people around us and offer them hope. Come here and you can find 
salvation. Turn to me. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Do you see it? Do you hear it? During this horrific scene, there is a place you can go. The oracles of judgment. When the Pharisees and Sadducees came to see John the Baptist, they asked him, uh, who are you? Who Are you the Messiah, John? And John said, no, I'm, I'm John. And he said, but I will tell you this. Listen to what he said. Many of you know this scripture. I baptize with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What he says is when Jesus comes, it's not going to be rainbows and unicorns. It is going to be unquenchable fire. There is going to be judgment coming. The coming of Jesus, even His first coming as a baby, was a time of judgment and separation of peoples and nations. He called people to make a decision. Follow me or die. That clear. I mean, the nerve of this guy. You know, I mean, it's one of the greatest stumbling blocks the world has. How can Christianity say it's exclusive? You know, let me be honest with you folks. I really don't know. I'm not so sure I like it. If anybody but Jesus had said it, I probably would say, you know, I'm not too sure about it. But my goodness, folks, it's His words, not mine. And if they're His words, I'm obliged as just a puny little creature. I didn't, you know, I don't know, I'm nothing. I have to obey Him. And so He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. Well, what's going to happen to all those other people? Folks, let me tell you something. Let me tell you a secret. I don't know. I'm not the judge, thanks be to God. Yes? Aren't you glad I'm not the judge? Could we vote and make me the judge? I, I wouldn't mind. No, I, I, wouldn't even know, I wouldn't even begin to know how to judge. One thing I do know is the first one that I would level judgment against, the first one that I would condemn to the burning fires of hell would be myself, if I'm honest. Because I know me. You don't know me. I put on a mask. I mean, look at this tie. This tie ought to blow your mind today. I can fake it. I can fake it to all of you. I can even fake it in my family, but I can't fake it to Him. And so when it comes time to talk about judgment, I feel the weight. I feel the fear. If anyone needs to go to hell, it's me. I know that. And so I clamor to find the foot of the cross. I look for the grace of God. I beg for the amazing grace of God. And that needs to be every, every true believer. That's the first thing that will come to your mind. I don't need to look at the, the little splinter, the little speck in my brother's eye. I need to look at the beam, the log that's in my own. Maybe if I take that out, I can, then I can see a little clearly, yes? And that's what Joel is saying, or what John said. I baptize with water, but 
Jesus is going to come. He's going to baptize with fire. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be a separation. Wheat and chaff. A great cataclysm. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun's going to be darkened and the moon is going to turn to blood on that great and dreadful day that He appears. And then... Back into the poppy field, the singing, the dancing, the hope, the emerald city, the oracle of salvation. Verse 32, look at it. A new era of amazing grace. The oracle of judgment, 30 through 31, just two verses, and then the oracle of salvation. This is how the prophets very often structured their work. So if you go read Amos or any of the rest, you'll start to see it. It's kind of cool and help you understand. The oracle of salvation, a new era of amazing grace. Let's go through it quickly. Everyone, he says, everyone, not just the Hebrew people, not just the Jews, not just the Israelites, but everyone and anyone who will call upon the Lord will be saved. There's no distinction. The free offer of the gospel will go out to all the world and anyone that hears it will be able to choose to trust in Jesus Christ. I choose to trust in Jesus Christ. Now I have to tell you that I'm a Calvinist and I believe in election and predestination, but that does not override the fact that we do choose and God makes it possible for us to choose by giving us new birth. And we can talk about that maybe in a Sunday school class someday. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, there's no other name. Don't go looking for some other God to save you. Don't look for money to save you. Don't look for career. Don't look for family. Don't look for your children. Listen, folks. Don't, listen to, don't let your children become your vindication. Don't use them in that way. Don't use your career as vindication. Don't use your money as vindication. Don't use your good looks. I mean, I have to struggle with that myself. (laughs) Don't look look at anything. Don't let anything. Don't look at your reputation. Well, boy, you know what a great person I am. I've been so good. I obey better than at least these five people over here. Well, maybe not them, but these five people, you know, we, we tend to judge ourselves by others. We don't do that. You see, we don't do that. There's no other name under it. We don't look for salvation anywhere else but Jesus Christ for our salvation. And there will be those who escape. There will be those who survive. And I trust that many of you will escape and will survive. At the end of the day, when you're laying uh, in hospice or, uh, in your, or your, your last breath, wherever you are for your last breath. I've been in the hospital three, four times this year. And I tell you, every time something goes wrong. Every time I go to the doctor in the past four years, the doctor tells me I have cancer. I'm going to quit going. I told Monty, I'm not going anymore. Every time I go, they tell me I have cancer. Oh, hello, Chuck. You haven't been here in a year. You have cancer. What do you do with that bad news? Salvation is not salvation just so you can go to heaven. Salvation is so you can endure the fear and the terror of this life. So when you're laying in your darkest moment in a hospital bed and there's nobody around and you don't know if you're going to wake up, there's somebody there holding your hand and saying, 
I have already gone into the grave for you. You will never see the inside of a grave. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that you will never see the inside? Your body, yes, indeed, it'll go into a grave. But you'll never see the inside of that grave. When your eyes open, you're not going to see the, 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 the lid of the casket above your eyes. You're going to be looking into the face of your Savior. Why? Because He was in that grave. He opened His eyes and what did He see? The gaping, the gaping hole of hell itself. That's what He saw. So that we could always know and have the assurance that we open our eyes and see His face and our salvation is sure. See, prophecy, folks, it's difficult to interpret. It's very difficult. But in the Acts, Acts chapter 2, I was going to read it, but I don't have time to read the whole thing. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and everybody was running. There was confusion. It was blood, fire, vapor of smoke. Everybody was, thousands of people were streaming into the square to figure, what is going on? And Peter said, this is what's going on. Just like it was in the day of Joel, today is the fulfillment of that great and dreadful day. I will turn the moon to blood. The sun will be darkened. I will pour out my spirit. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy on that great and dreadful day. And then he says this. He, he quotes Joel exactly what I've been doing for you folks for the last few weeks. And then he says this. Listen. You gotta love Peter. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you killed at the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up. Do you see it? Blood, fire, vapor of smoke. But God raised him up. We're on the way to the Emerald City. God raised him up, not loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for death to hold him. You see, Peter had just witnessed 50 days before the great and dreadful day of the Lord when the wrath of God like it had never before descended upon the earth fell in one specific place. It dropped straight into the heart of Jesus Christ our Lord. All of it. Not part of it. Every drop. He took the cup, the Bible says, of God's wrath and he drank it to the dregs down to the bottom for us and as us in our place. He took that great burden. Every year I try to share this quote with, with you all from the great Presbyterian minister, James Stewart, one of my very favorites, if not my favorite. And James Stewart said this, and I'll finish here. 
It is a glorious phrase. He led captivity captive. The very triumph of his foes it means. He used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were planting imperishable into the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned, helpless, defeated. They did not know. It was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. He conquered through it. Thanks be to God. Put your trust in Him. I hope you will. Father, thank You for this time together. Thank You for granting us Your grace and Your mercy that was lavished upon us and has continued to be lavished upon us by Jesus Christ. And even as we grow old and frail and there's so much uncertainty in the world around us, even in our own country, Father, we look to You We put our lives in your hands and we look in hope to the one who did not conquer in spite of evil but conquered through it. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All praise to you, Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith in this holy sacrament. Amen.